This is Super Women in Science. I'm Corden, and I'm a music therapist. And I'm Nicole. I'm a neuroscientist. We will be discussing the past, present, and future of women and non-binary people in science. Highlighting a variety of scientific endeavors, as well as issues in science today. Today, we're talking about planetary science. Welcome back to our 15th episode. We have a really great episode for you, and we are really excited for you to listen. Uh, So we hope you enjoy. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, again, it's been super delayed, but it's because we have exciting news. Most of the delay is my fault uh, because I was finishing up my master's, uh, which still is not uh, technically submitted to the university, but it has been um, approved. My thesis has been passed, uh, and so basically everything is finished, uh, and I'm very, very excited. So finished my master's in neuroscience. Yay. Thank you, friend. (laughs) I'm making an on-mic commitment that I might cut out, Um, but we are going to try our hardest to make our second half of the season, so our next five episodes, really consistent. But it is so much fun to be back podcasting, and we're very excited. So thank you to everyone for uh, your support and for your patience and, yeah, for listening. So today, we thought we would talk about Nobel Prizes, and obviously this came up because of the recent news of the Canadian woman, Dr. Donna Strickland, who won the Nobel Prize in Physics. So she's the third woman ever to win in Physics and the first Canadian. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, we also have news about uh, another woman, Dr. Frances Arnold, uh, who shared the 2018 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Uh, So we're going to talk about these two amazing women a little bit today and Nobel Prizes in general. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Strickland conducted her prize-winning research in 1985 while she was working with her then-PhD supervisor, French physicist Gérard Mouraud, at the University of Rochester in New York State. So, to learn more about her specific research, there's a really great article in the Globe and Mail that kind of explains it to you. Mm -hmm. It is very cool. It's all about lasers, which is awesome. Good old Uh physicists and their lasers. Um, And it's actually the same technique that's now used in laser eye surgery. And so that's really cool. I didn't know that. Um, So now she has a Nobel Prize. And it's exciting because she is a Canadian. um, And Mm -hmm. so lots of people sent it to us. We were very excited to hear. Um, And she's currently working at the University of Waterloo. So very close to home for both of us, Mm -hmm. um, which is just exciting. Yeah, so when she won, obviously everybody was very, very excited, but there was a little bit of turmoil around it for a couple of different reasons. Um, So the first one was someone brought it up that during one of their wiki edit-a-thons, someone tried to create a Wikipedia page for her before she won, and it was actually rejected because she wasn't famous enough. Mm-hmm. And this is pretty common. So if you're not familiar, there's a couple efforts going on recently of people creating Wikipedia pages for women in science because of the underrepresentation online. Um, and so this is also fairly common of sometimes somebody will write an article and then it gets rejected because they're not notable enough or something. Uh, and so mm-hmm. obviously, uh, Dr. Donna Strickland did some pretty incredible research um, and is fairly notable. Uh, and so... Yeah, we'd just like to continue to see people creating Wikipedia pages um, and just increasing representation. So shout out to all the people who are organizing uh, edit-a-thons around the world. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Another point that was brought up around Dr. Strickland is that she's not actually an associate professor at Waterloo University. So there was a little bit of outrage about this. She did come out with a statement saying that she never actually applied to get a tenure um, track position. So there is the one side where she didn't really want to, but then there's also the discussion happening about the systemic issue of women not actually applying as much as men. So a lot of things around that, but she has actually applied and she is now a tenured professor at the University of Waterloo. So that's really great. Um, And so the other woman who won a recent Nobel Prize, uh, Dr. Frances Arnold, uh, so her prize was in chemistry, and it was for directed evolution of enzymes, which is pretty incredible. Um, And yeah, both of these are very exciting because sadly, although it is 2018, there haven't been that many women recognized for Nobel Prizes. So Donna Strickland was the third woman ever to win in physics and the first Canadian. And Frances Arnold was the fifth woman. Uh, to win the Nobel Prize in chemistry. So it is sadly still a novel thing, I suppose, but the women have been here. We are doing awesome science, and so it is fairly exciting uh, once there's recognition. Though I will say, so, so many people were sending us these things, and I did feel a little bit, I don't know, just of apprehension or just trepidation about boosting the news because I kind of feel a little uh, questionable about Nobel Prizes. You know what I mean? Um, I sometimes feel a little uh, not great about everyone focusing just on who wins the Nobel Prize. Yeah. And Ed Young actually wrote a really, really great article about this in Mm -hmm. The Atlantic. He makes some really great points that instead of actually honoring science, Nobel Prizes kind of distort its nature and overlook a lot of important contributors because research isn't made by one single scientist. Mm -hmm. But the way that Nobel Prizes kind of distort it to make it look like it's this single genius in a basement creating a discovery when really what science is right now and what we want science to be in the future is this open collaborative teamwork things. Mm -hmm. And a quote from Ed's article is, yes, researchers sometimes make solo breakthroughs, but that's increasingly rare. Even within a single research group, a platoon of postdocs, students, and technicians will typically be involved in a discovery that gets hitched to a single investigator's name. More often than not, many groups collaborate on a single project. And so there was also, like, I think the people who won last year for the Nobel Prize, uh, three men won for a project that actually had three full pages of authors for the paper that like we're working on that so how do you highlight like one of the many you know what I mean yeah or even three yeah and there are a lot of examples of people doing really great science and doing the work and not getting the credit so a key example is Jocelyn Bell who discovered pulsars in her grad studies but was denied the Nobel Prize as it was given to her supervisor instead of her So one really great thing to come out is that Dr. Strickland was given a Nobel Prize for her graduate work, and she shared it with her supervisor, and it was actually her first published work, which is really, really cool. Um, Really, really cool change. 
So yeah, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Jocelyn Bell is one of those like infamous cases mm-hmm. of the, her work was attributed to her male colleagues. Um, but since then, in 2018, uh, Dr. Bell was given a $3 million grant for that same breakthrough that she was originally denied the Nobel Prize, and she donated it in its entirety to encourage diversity in physics. So how wonderful is that? Yeah. So she says that the money will go to the Institute of Physics to fund graduate scholarships Mm -hmm. for people from underrepresented groups. So including women, members of ethnic minorities and refugees. And so she has a quote to BBC where she says that people from minority groups bring a fresh angle on things that is often very productive thing. A lot of breakthroughs come from left field. Uh, So that's just a wonderful reminder that let's stop just focusing maybe on just the singular people who have made it and let's increase opportunities for everyone. Yeah. And later in our episode, we have a really wonderful interview with a young woman who's very invested in both planetary science and art, which is extremely relevant to what we're talking about right now, as Dr. Jocelyn Bell has had a history of mixing uh, her science, which is also space science, uh, and art. And so on the wonderful site of Brain Pickings, uh, which is curated by the fabulous Maria Popova, which, side note, I really encourage you to check out if you haven't. Uh, It frequently talks about the intersections of science and Mm -hmm. art uh, and other really wonderful things. Uh, But this one article uh, was centered around the idea of poetry and space science, uh, and it reviews the book Dark Matter, Poems in Space, which was edited by Dr. Jocelyn Bell. And so the book contains 113 poems, all collected by Dr. Bell, that are inspired by astronomy. And so the brain pickings piece also touches on an excerpt from a lecture that Dr. Bell gave on poetry and astronomy, and it includes the audio from the poem Halley's Comet, which was written by former poet laureate Stanley Kunitz. Another really great quote from this article was by the trailblazing astronomer Maria Mitchell that she actually wrote in her diary in 1871. Um, So she said, we especially need imagination in science. It is not all mathematics, nor all logic, but it is somewhat beauty and poetry. Mm, That's a really wonderful quote. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we just really encourage you to go and check out this wonderful piece uh, by Brain Pickings. And also, if you have any examples of combining art and science or poetry and science, uh, please send them our way and we'd love to share them with our listeners. Today, we're reading about Mae Jemison, who's an astronaut, educator, and doctor. Mae Jemison always knew that she would go into space. She was born in 1956 in Alabama and grew up in Chicago. She was obsessed with the Apollo missions, but noticed that there was no one who looked like her going up into space. However, the fictional TV show Star Trek featured people of different genders and races working together. This had an impact on young May, and Lieutenant Yehura became her role model. (laughs) May went to Stanford and double majored in chemical engineering and African American studies. She went on to Cornell and became a medical doctor. She worked in the Peace Corps in Sierra Leone and Liberia for several years. She continued working as a doctor until it was time to chase her space dream. May applied to NASA and became an astronaut. In 1992, Mae Jemison became the first African-American woman in space. On the space shuttle Endeavour, she took an Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority flag, a West Africa Bundu statue, and a poster of Judith Jamison dancing. She wanted African and African-American culture to be represented in space and no longer left out. 
The following year, she left NASA and started numerous companies, including her own technology consulting firm, the Jemison Group Incorporated. May is the founder of the Biosentient Corporation, which creates devices that will allow doctors to monitor patients' day-to-day nervous system functions. The technology and problem-solving to get humans in space created inventions that we use today on Earth. May was inspired by this and became principal of the 100-Year Starship Project. The goal is to make sure human beings will be able to travel to the next solar system within the next 100 years. This project will also inspire new solutions to materials, recycling, energy, and fuel, just as the space race did. May Jemison still has her eyes on the stars while helping solve problems here on Earth. Today, we have a wonderful interview that we hope you'll enjoy with Divya M. Persaud. So Divya is a planetary scientist, writer, and composer with an ongoing focus in remote sensing for planetary geology and geophysics. She is currently pursuing her PhD in space and climate physics at UCL's Mullard Space Science Laboratory in the UK. Uh, So in this lab, she's developing methods of Mars image data fusion and automated feature recognition for surface geology ahead of the ExoMars 2020 rover launch. Divya holds a BA in geology and music composition from the University of Rochester and is an alumna of the NASA Academy. Divya is also the poet of the upcoming book, Do Not Perform This, which won an Editor's Choice Award for Great Indian Poetry Collective in 2018, and two self-published collections, Color 2016 and De Cello et Tellure. She is additionally the composer of the self-produced song cycle slash album, They Will Be Free, from 2017. Her writing and music incorporate her polymathic background and transcend form to discuss memory, human connection, and the double diaspora experience. She is, like, the best. We're super honored (laughs) to have her on the podcast. Um, It's a really great interview, and we hope you enjoy. Well, thank you so much, Divya, for being with us. We're super excited to finally get you on the podcast. Before we start, we just have one question for you. Do you wear a lab coat? Do I wear it? I do not wear a lab coat. Contrary to stock photos of astronomers, I do not wear a lab coat. <laughs> <laughs> and that's very timely. Eh? That's, that's good to know. Um, so if an astronomer is not wearing a lab coat, could you briefly explain, I don't know, break down some misconceptions, I guess, about just what the field of astronomy really is? Oh, yeah. So, so I'm actually in um, planetary science, which is a subsection of astronomy uh, that intersects with geology, physics, um, astrophysics, uh, all sorts of disciplines, um, chemistry, really exciting upcoming fields, I think, uh, because so many fields are involved. Um, but I think, I think some misconceptions about planetary science are that you, you can define it. Um, I think it's, it's such a, a diverse field where uh, everyone from computer scientists to engineers to statisticians and then geologists um, even artists come together and, and work on these complex problems of, of space exploration. So I think that is the bi- biggest misconception that, um, you know, there's, there's one way to be a planetary scientist that we look at data. We all look at data. We all do analysis. We all use, you know, one software. Maybe we all are part of missions. Maybe we're all part of the same missions, et cetera. Um, so yeah. Uh, other misconceptions. Um, we're not all astronauts. That's a that's mm-hmm. a sad misconception. <laughs> I wish we were. <laughs> and I, th- I think 
one one misconception about astronomers that that tends to get me, and I think this covers all fields of astronomy, is that we're we're loners, um, and especially in in space exploration. Everything we do is part of a team. Even if you're working alone day to day, you're always relying on someone at a different university or you know a different government agency in a different country. Um, it's very, very interconnected and extremely exciting in that regard. And I don't think there's a way to be absolutely isolated in the things that we do. So yeah. <laughs> awesome. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. So since there are so many different ways to be a planetary scientist, um, what specifically do you do? Yeah, so my background is actually geology. I did my, my undergraduate uh, degree in geology. Um, and then my research background is more geophysics in application to planets planets. Um, So right now I'm doing my PhD in planetary imaging for Mars. And so what that involves is figure out new novel ways to take the images that we get from planetary missions like uh, Mars rovers, Mars orbiters, um, and putting them together in a way that a geologist like me can actually work with that data and understand what's going on in the surface of a planet. Um, so that, what that involves is a lot of computer science. So uh, because my background is geology, I'm, I'm learning quite a lot of programming, um, software development, et cetera, um, combined with optics, physics, um, uh, geological understanding of what's happening on Mars. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hopefully gaining a holistic sort of vision of, of how we put our eyes on Mars and how we can take those images back and put them back in a framework that human eyes can understand. I think that's the, the best way to think about it. That is so cool. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. I'm super impressed. So what specifically got you interested in science? Um, and even specifically this current field, what drew you into planetary science? Oh, man. Uh, so it started when I was four years old. And I collected rocks all the time. And one day I asked my mom, how do I do this for a living? And she said, it's called, <laughs> it's called geology. Throughout my childhood, I, I'd borrow books from the library and read about geology. And, and my family was really supportive. And, you know, they, they'd take me to events, um, uh, buy me rock samples, you know, l- listen to me rant about some, you know, very mundane pebble I found behind the house, et cetera. Um, <laughs> So a big part of it was was really my family's encouragement, which I'm really grateful for. Uh, but then my sister was actually interested in astronomy when we were growing up, extremely interested in astronomy. So we would do family activities around that. And I was pretty much disinterested in astronomy and space growing up um, until I watched a Discovery Channel special on the Cassini mission in middle school. And... You know, I'd come home from school, I just put this on and, you know, I learned about the Cassini mission, which um, had a component called the Huygens probe and the Huygens probe was deployed in 2005 and landed on Saturn's moon Titan and took pictures of its descent and then on the ground. And one of the most striking things is on the ground, uh, there's this beautiful photo of these rounded pebbles in the foreground and gentle slopes in the distance. And, you know, geologists took one look at this and said, it looks like a river environment on Earth. Um, so I was watching this on TV, and I was just so upset. I was like, "Why haven't we learned about the Cassini mission that we've landed on Titan?" You know, in school, mm-hmm. and I'm still angry about that. I think <laughs> that anger is a big reason of uh, behind why I'm I'm so passionate about planetary science because 
um, you know, we're all part of the project of space exploration. And, you know, so, so in that moment, I thought, okay, I love geology. I want to do geology. And once I'm a good geologist, I want to do planetary geology and apply all that knowledge to planets. So that was the plan. Um, so <laughs> I made, I made NASA my homepage, <laughs> my computer <laughs> in middle school. And I read all these articles about, about space missions and everything. And then um, early in high school, I applied for this program called NASA Inspire. Uh, it was an online learning community. It was a forum. Um, it was a national program where students would essentially talk to each other about space. And it was moderated by NASA scientists and engineers. And there would be web webcasts and events and everything. It was actually really wonderful. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. And then... Uh, through that program, I applied for a NASA internship. Um, it was a high school program. It was really excellent, uh, where uh, you would live at the uh, close by to the NASA center and essentially do um, a research project, you know, geared for high school students, but still fairly rigorous. And I applied for that, and I won a position, and that was my junior year of high school. Um, wow. at, at that point, I was still like, you know, I want to do earth science for 10, 15 years, and then I'll, I'll think about space. Um, and I landed a project uh, with an instrument team on the Messenger mission, which was a mission to Mercury um, that ended a couple of years ago, but it was launched in 2011. Um, so I got there a month after the first data started coming back, and I was like, okay, this is pretty cool, I guess. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, and by the end of the summer, I was like, okay, you know, I could be convinced to do this. Um, the next year, I was like, uh, you know, I'm still interested in Earth, but I like the people I worked with, and it was, you know, I'm, I'm downplaying it. I had the time of my life. Um, so I went back <laughs> the following summer, and I started my degree in geology, and I was still thinking, okay, you know, maybe I should start thinking about space. Um, so I applied to a lab position uh, my freshman year, and I got to work with meteorites. And so that started a long journey of denial of me saying, no, I'll do planetary science in the future and me just continually ending up by luck doing planetary science. Um, <laughs> and I, one day I decided, okay, you know what? I'm good at this. I've, I've done this a few times. I think I should just, I should just do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's my story. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. And it's so cool to hear like your journey through science and how you got here, especially when you started um, like discussing how the field is so broad, it was really, I was like, how do you possibly end up where you are? Um, and so that's really cool to hear kind of your story. Yeah. Thank you. So you're also an artist. So how did you, how did you get interested in like the intersect of your science and your art? Um, <laughs> I guess it starts when I was four years old. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a big year. Yeah, it, it really was. I, I, really, really wanted to be a writer and um, a painter when I was a little kid. Um, mm. So my, my grandfather uh, taught me how to read and write using poetry, and so did my mom. Um, so I was really interested in poetry as a kid. I thought it was so much fun. I'd read all these like kids' poetry books. Um, and it was also really, we had a really great art program at our elementary school um, that got me extremely interested in, in doing visual art. So my, my whole you know plan was to become a famous author and use that money to fund my science, which <laughs> is the cutest thing <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, and I, I never let go of it. And it got to a point where I was, 
you know, I had to make decisions about classes I would take in high school. Um, and my philosophy became, you know, what, I'm going to do this as long as it, it's physically possible until someone really sets their foot down and says, no, you have to choose. Um, mm. And that, that just got me here. <laughs> I think um, in, at the end of high school, I started picking up poetry again. And then in college, uh, I did a music major in composition, first, first in cello performance and then composition. Um, and I was still writing really actively. I found a really great group of friends who were also interested in both science and art. And I guess, you know, having a passion in both of those things, you have to start thinking, okay, you know, what, what, what really is fundamentally the difference between these two things, especially when people are constantly telling you, oh, you're, you know, you're going to have to pick at some point, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to have to, to pick a side of your brain to follow or, a, you know, a philosophy of the, of a way of looking at the world, even mm-hmm. if, if that's how you define the difference between science and art. And it became more and more ridiculous to me because I take so much of what I do in in writing, for example, the the concept of telling a story is the same way I approach research, right? Mm-hmm. What kind of story can I tell? Um, what kind of questions do I want to answer? And how does that fit into a bigger narrative even? Um, which, which I think is extremely important in staying motivated in science because sometimes you're doing something really tedious and, and it almost seems... Like it's not worth anything, and then you think, okay, what is the bigger picture here? What am I setting up for the future? Mm-hmm. You know, what are students going to take from this twenty years down the line when it it grows into something bigger? Um, and I think writing has given me that specific perspective, and science itself has given me a lot of the analytical tools to do things like composition. Um, where I originally was doing cello, but then I started getting interested in music theory and how we can think about music using numbers and spatial relationships and um and you know that that was that was a crossover that was extremely easy i started using uh music notation software and playing with uh electro electronic music and stuff and all of all of those ideas of of understanding sound from the most physical component came directly from my interest in science and so again it it slowly became a ridiculous distinction to Mm -hmm. me when uh, science and art really are just creative ways of trying to understand the universe and make something out of that and relating it to people. And I think that's why I'm so interested in um, science communication and outreach because that's what art is. You know, it's it's communicating your ideas in a way that a person can understand and also in a way that a person can creatively engage with. Yeah, that's, I don't think anybody can say it. No, <laughs> I was just going to say the same thing. Thank you. So beautiful. Do you have an influential person or theorist or theory that shapes your work? Oh man, uh, my my scientific work or my artistic work? Uh, either. <laughs> either. Um, oh, I think it's tough. I, I try not to to latch on to mm. you know don't don't meet your heroes kind of thing. Um, yeah. I mean, I have a lot of <laughs> I have a lot of scientific heroes, even though I try to try to maintain that philosophy. Um, I think uh, I think for science, I mean, it's it's cheesy, but I think it's it's my sister. Um, you know, she she sat me down when I was four or five years old and said, "The universe is expanding," and that that blew my mind and that that affected me to to my core. Um, and that that absolute wonder and terror has never left me. I think, and and the way she also felt compelled to share her energy and love for space with me in that kind of way. Um, and guide me in that kind of way showed me sort of the generosity I think that is necessary to do space science um, where again space exploration is it's a project for everyone Mm -hmm. Um, 
and I, I really try to try to think about that often and try to hold that dear to me. Um, and I, I, I think for art, it might, it might honestly be the same thing. <laughs> Just, like I said, the, the idea of, of sharing um, what everyone sort of has a right to and, and sharing your perspective and sharing your energy and love. Um, because I think when you keep your energy and love to yourself, is it, is it really there if you don't express it? I think. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> That's the, that's the word of the day. <laughs> I think, yeah, we're both just like, I really loved what you said about the, the generosity of the science and mm. having that being an integral part. That's such a, a beautiful perspective. And like, that's so needed. In science. Thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, I also want to say my, my commitment to, to trying to remember to be generous in science definitely comes from a lot of people in, in space science who taking a chance on me. And I think that's something I really love about space science is that uh, most researchers don't let go of that, that sort of innate curiosity and, and need to share that with people. And some of the most like kindest, most generous people I know are in space science. You know, they're the people I, I just walk into an office and ask questions from, and, and they'll give me two hours of their day explaining what they do. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. And so I try to also channel that energy into what I do. We've kind of touched on this briefly, but is there anything that really drives or motivates your work in science and art? Um, you know, okay, I, I, was, I was telling someone this yesterday, and it's sort of a, a speech I do. It's this, this idea of being in planetary science and space science, and that there are so many ways that we, of course, touch people, um, and that makes it worth it in itself. But this, the, the thing that we do is there's no other way of looking at it than the purest spirit of curiosity, right? Where I'm looking at Mars, I'm not saving a life, not to, not to posture it in that sense, but I'm, I'm getting to play with fundamental questions about the universe. And, and that's my job. And that's, I mean, it humbles me, but it's, it also blows my mind. It's absolutely fun. And we get to, it's the biggest, most expensive candy shop that we get to play in. <laughs> And I don't know. I try to I try to bring that sort of humor as much as it is, you know, humility also into what I'm doing. Um, and step back from what I do every day and think, gosh, this is so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, aside from the serious aspects of of sharing space with people, um, you know, the solar system belongs to everyone, and I get to be a part of what what brings it to everyone. I honestly, that really gets me up in the morning, thinking, gosh, this is this is almost silly that I get to do this. <laughs> That's a great motivation though. Yeah. yeah. It just like shows how much you love your work, which is always really, really nice. Mm. In terms of thinking about the next generation who wants to kind of follow your footsteps, um, what all do they have to do or what would you advise somebody who's interested in going on the same path? Ooh, that is, it's something I consider a lot. Um, <laughs> Trying to trying to think because the field is changing so rapidly. I mean, when I started, you know, getting my foot in the door when and what was that, 2011, um, so many things from from 3D printing for space were like a, a hypothetical situation. And then two years mm. with 3D printing on the ISS. Um, so technologically speaking, it's rapidly evolving and you're seeing new uh, academic programs in planetary science specifically where, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you would just do a degree in physics or geology and find your way to space science. And 
I think it's incredible, but it, it also means I feel like an old man <laughs> trying to give <laughs> advice to these young people where, where even what I went through is completely different than what they're going to see in college. But I think, you know, what ties us across, ties us together across generations is, uh, you know, find what you love, find the avenue that you love most that gets you doing space science. Don't necessarily say, oh, okay, so they say, you know, I have to do physics, I have to do engineering, whatever. Do what you love and and yeah. find a way to, to apply it to science because there's so many opportunities. Um, you know, you can be an anthropologist and do space science. You can be, uh, a I know so many visual artists who did graphic design and who work at JPL and the um, visualization department who do critical work for the uh, Mars rover teams. There are so many ways to get into it. And I think, um, you know, if you don't, if you don't find a way that you love to get into it, it it's not going to work. <laughs> uh, I think, I think that's true for any field, but I think especially space being, being so diverse, being so rapidly changing, don't necessarily buy into narratives of, okay, I have to do this, 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 check off this, this tick box, you know, find your own journey. Um, I think other than that, um, so many things I would say. I, <laughs> uh, be curious, but be actively curious. Um, again, space scientists are, are very generous. So I would say email people you're interested in. in you know, if you, if you see them in the news, if you read their papers, write them an email. Um, go visit your university physics department. Uh, reach out to these people because we, we are people. and. Um, you know, I think I think space science suffers from this whole idea of you know we're just headlines and we're extremely distant. And I think, uh, especially if we think about say NASA, it's just sort of this like monolith that you you enter and don't don't leave, and it's a black box and you don't know how they do it. But they do it and it's magic, which is which is great. It's exciting, but I think that was the most important lesson of of getting to intern at NASA was seeing like okay, it's just it's just people, you know. Um, <laughs> they're human beings and they had really diverse ways of getting to NASA. You know, they went to college and then did their PhD 30 years later, or didn't do their PhD or started out as, as stay at home moms. Um, see, seeing the diversity of people who, who are doing space science, I think is critically important. And then also making sure you understand how space science is done, because I think, uh, what comes with a black box is is this thinking that we go from A to B. You know, we do a little bit of data science, and then all of a sudden we have this huge result. Where it, it's it's decades of very hard work, and and you know I have to be blunt about that, about that because sometimes that's not for everyone, um, and it's it's good to be aware of that because you know there are people who who conceptualize missions in their twenties and then they're sixty when it's when it's coming true, and you just have to be patient and 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 really stick be able to stick to something um and you should you should be aware of that um so yeah yeah I think that's that's what I would say yeah great advice so what are your hopes for the future of women in planetary science the hopes for the future oh I think I think um one big philosophy of space science is hope I think uh mm. we we're trying to reach other planets and learn about them. And you need a, a lot of hope. But I think, you know, my hopes for more materially would be that planetary science finds its space among um, a lot of the, the private sector sort of space exploration companies that are emerging, where I think we're, we're struggling to find a balance between, okay, these are the people building rockets. 
these are the people who need the rockets. These are the people who are going to need the data from the things that are going up in the rockets. And I think that's going to be a really big challenge in the next uh, five years, if not decade, um, mm. where you know we're having this space race, but it's not necessarily attached to what the scientists are doing on the ground. Um, whereas in the last space race, you know, scientists were pretty involved. We were doing the geology on the moon, right? Um, but we're not necessarily having that conversation again today. So I, I would really hope to see that conversation grow and, and for us to develop a greater partnership with our space companies and, and um, the current space race and also make sure that scientists get to have a voice in where that's going and what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and my other hope is, is that, you know, again, I keep saying the solar system belongs to all of us. And that's something I try to say a lot because it does, right? I'm no, no one person or no one group of people, no research group has a claim to space. We, we all live in space. And I really hope that space exploration comes to represent that a little more, um, getting more women, more people of color in science in the West getting more uh, countries involved in space exploration, making sure that, you know, if we, if we have a space race, it's not a political event. It's a communal event. It is a way to bring together people in the spirit of, say, the International Space Station. Um, and, and making sure that we're always doing it for good reasons, in the name of peace, in the name of solidarity, in the name of community. Um, and that, I think that's my, my greatest dream for planetary science, for it to find itself part of that greater quest and to stay committed to it. That's beautiful. So if people want to hear more of all these beautiful thoughts, um, where can they find you online? Uh, Social media, website? Yeah, so I I have a website. I don't really put my thoughts on there, um, just sort of updates. Uh, So that's my full name, uh, divyampersad.wordpress.com. That's D-I-V-Y-A-M-P-E-R-S-A-U-D dot wordpress um and then i also have a facebook page with that same name um and then i also have twitter uh so that's divya underscore m underscore p um which is where i put many more of my thoughts um but i'm hopefully going to start doing a bit more um science communications writing on my website in the future so stay tuned for that yeah awesome Yeah, this was a great interview. Thank you so much for meeting with us. Thanks so much for talking to me. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it was wonderful. (laughs) Okay, and for our last section of the podcast, uh, we have a really inspiring young woman who is just doing incredible things for the next generation of space scientists. So Abigail Harrison, uh, in 2011, and at the age of 13, she began to speak publicly about her dream of becoming the first astronaut to Mars. Her work over the years is in international STEAM, science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics, and space ambassador, has led to a following of over 1 million people on social media. So already, really cool person, astronaut Abby, but to add on to that, In 2015, when she was only 18 years old, she founded the Mars Generation. And so the Mars Generation is a nonprofit with the support of an advisory board of astronauts, engineers, scientists, and hundreds of thousands of online supporters. So the nonprofit has reached over 25 million people in its first two years of operation with its work to educate and excite kids and adults about space exploration and STEM education. She has a lot of great experiences to speak on. Um, So we hope that you enjoy her interview and learn a little bit more about the Mars generation.
Abby, thank you so much for being here with us. We're really excited to talk to you. So to start, can you briefly explain what the Mars Generation is to our listeners? Absolutely, and thanks for having me today. So the Mars Generation is a nonprofit that I started about two and a half years ago, which focuses on exciting and inspiring people about space exploration and STEM education, so that's science, technology, engineering, and math, and then also supporting young people who are pursuing careers in those fields. So wonderful. Thank you. And you also, you created that when you were 18, correct? I did, yeah. My first month in college, we launched the Mars Generation. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. It was a busy month. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. So what led you to create the Mars Generation? Uh, Like, what's your motivation and inspiration behind this project? Well, there's a really interesting backstory behind it, actually. When I was 15 years old, I was invited to Kazakhstan, to Baikonur, Kazakhstan, by an Italian astronaut, Luca Parmitano, with the European Space Agency, who was launching on a Soyuz rocket for six months on the International Space Station. And he had asked me to be his Earth liaison. So Earth liaison is a role that had never been even uh, thought of before, which was this idea of an astronaut partnering with a student to share his experiences living and working in space with different groups than he was able to reach. So especially being able to reach out to, you know, young and teenage girls with this exciting message of space exploration and hope for our futures, basically. Um, So he asked me to help him with that. And I spent six months after his launch visiting classrooms and speaking at conferences and events and publishing a lot of stuff online and running different social media channels and just curating a lot of information and uh, exciting content for for people to to get involved with space exploration. And after that, I continued to do a lot of space and STEM outreach because it seemed like it was such an important and valuable thing to be doing. I didn't want to let that go just because there was no longer a formal partnership with a, with an astronaut in space. And so over the next two and a half years, I continued to do space and STEM outreach. And when I went to college, decided to formalize it into a nonprofit where I was able to invite a lot more people to be a part of this basically mission that um, looks to looks to better all of our futures. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. If someone wants to join the Mars Generation, um, what's involved? What, what do they have to do? We have programs and ways that pretty much anyone who wants to can be involved with the Mars Generation. It can be anything from being a, a sponsor or a member all the way to being a teacher who helps to use our, our materials and whatnot in their curriculum, or even just joining one of our social media channels and keeping up with, that, with us there. We're super excited to have everyone be involved. We especially are looking to target young people. So we have a student space ambassador program where we have over 1,500 students from around the world, and that's between the ages of 14 and 24 who are going out there and are doing outreach in whatever way suits them in their communities. And we try and support them in that. So if you think that you'd like to be involved with the future of space exploration, or you want to help promote an interest in STEM, you can go ahead and go to themarsgeneration.org and we have all of our programs listed there. You can also find us as the Mars Generation on pretty much any social media channel. And you can find me as Astronaut Abby, once again, on all of these social medias. 
you've been really active on social media uh, with your title of Astronaut Abby, uh, which is so cool. Uh, you're just crushing it. Um, but what are your hopes for the future of space exploration and for STEAM? My hopes for the future of space exploration are that we continue to push our boundaries and that we continue to ask ourselves what's possible and then go farther than that. And so one thing that I really really expect and hope to see within our lifetimes is setting human human boot prints on other planets, so specifically Mars, and then potentially exploring other areas in our solar system as well. I think that that's a really valuable goal and something that's very realistic for us to believe that will happen within our lifetime. I also really hope to see a lot more people involved in STEM and the space industries, and especially to see a lot more women and young women come up and start to fill these positions that are becoming available. Love it. Yeah. Awesome. Is there anything else that you want our listeners to know about the Mars generation or joining your organization or about Astronaut Abbey? I think that the most important message that I can send to people out there is that the Mars generation and also my personal platforms as Astronaut Abbey are not just for people who have an interest in science or who already have a foothold in science or STEM. They're for everybody because science and STEM are a part of all of our daily lives. And it's something that we can do as a hobby. And we oftentimes don't realize or we forget that STEM can be a part of our lives, even if we're not officially scientists or engineers or whatnot. And so I would really encourage everyone who's listening to go ahead and seek out the Mars generation and take a look and uh, consider consider joining us. Great. That's wonderful. Couldn't agree more. Um, and thank you just so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing your message with all of our listeners. Um, and thank you for all of your work that you're doing uh, to promote science and exploration uh, and just outreach in general. It's wonderful. Thank you so much to everyone who's listening and also especially to both of you for having me on. I really am in awe and have so much respect for the important work that you're doing as science communicators and I uh, feel very honored that I got to share in it with you. Oh, thank you. We're honored that you agreed to come on. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to the Superwomen in Science podcast. Just a reminder that we're reading from Rachel Ignatowski's book, Women in Science. A big thank you to our amazing guests, Divya M. Persaud and Abigail Harrison. Make sure to follow us on SoundCloud or iTunes to hear our podcasts as soon as we put them out. Uh, so just search us in the podcast section, download, rate, and subscribe. And if you feel like leaving a review of our show, it would really help us uh, to help other people be able to find us. You can find us on Facebook at Superwomen in Science Podcast, on Twitter at Superwomen Sci, and on Instagram at Superwomen Science. A transcript of this episode and every episode can be found on our website, superwomeninscience.wordpress.com. Tweet us if you're a space scientist or if you want us to talk about your field of science. Thanks again. Why, Why is it always, always me? <laughs> oh. It's like three weeks in a row or three episodes in a row. That's so funny. Uh, you can start. <laughs> I'm always very nervous. What are your hopes for the future of space? <laughs> oh, I said space. That was a really bad question, so I'm glad it didn't work. I keep touching it with my tummy. Um, my computer... <laughs> So to learn more about her specific research, there's a really great, another point that was brought up that is, oh my gosh, sorry, I'm going to go one more time and then I'm pushing it onto you. <laughs> the trailblazing, yeah, we did it.
Hooray! Yeah, no, the, the, <laughs> how many times can I say that? Um, she told the British, <laughs> why did I write out BBC? She had art and science. Oops, I hit my mic. Hello, no. <laughs> uh, it, mm. hmm. I'm a pause. <laughs> I did see that coming and I was like, oh boy. <laughs> oh my god, is that the correct way to say diaspora? 30 seconds. Okay. Oh. <laughs> it's okay. It ended up being real awkward when I decided to uh, just do a bit of a ramble. Stop. Oh dear, I'm still recording. Okay, stop.